Let's pray. We're going to wrap up the, the last talk and go into the, into the next one, all right? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study and to conversate, Lord, um, to look at the things that are coming upon the earth, these difficult topics, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. Lead us through now into truth. Again, we ask for an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this one, I'm assuming, goes to about 11.50. We'll stop, and then we meet back up this afternoon. All right? So we were talking about health equals resiliency over stress, and we're talking about why social justice is important because, you know, you have to really address the stress that people are dealing with. The world gives false resources, we said, right? God gives the true resources. God does not own a thousand cattle on a hill. He owns what? The cattle on a thousand hills. So he has the resources we need. So when you get stressed out, one of the things that happens is, I don't know, you've probably seen me show this before, stressed spelled backwards is desserts. And so one of the reasons, there is another whole piece of social injustice. I don't know if you guys know this, but poor rural, predominantly white areas of the United States, uh, places I used to live in, places like Alabama, um, and inner city, predominantly black and brown areas, the fast food um, companies know that if they put these, it, these places there, these cheap, highly processed foods, high in animal products, people are going to eat more of them. Because when you're eating the sugar with the fat, releases dopamine, makes you feel better. You don't really get better, but it makes you feel better. And people say, well, I don't know if that's true. I say, well, you're stressed out. I'm going to put a bowl of apples next to a bowl of chocolate chip cookies. I'm going to see which one you go for. Most of us trained here, living and growing up here in America, you know, you go for the thing that's sweeter and fatter. Um, and so this is one of the ways it happens. But it's a play on this. Poverty, I'm going to go through these quick to get to the next talk, but poverty is one of the big ones. Poverty is one of the worst things that can happen. And, but poverty doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know what the Bible actually says? A man does that, that does not work and support his family is worse than an infidel. That's a powerful statement in the Bible. People say, well, when the church started, they were socialists, you know, so everybody just gave to each other. But the Bible says you still are supposed to work and support yourself and your family. Um, and so Gandhi, um, who, who said poverty is the worst form of violence. And so it's true. If, you, if people are made poor because of policy, like we were talking about in Jamaica through the IMF and the World Bank, that, that is, that's almost a form of violence when you intentionally keep people poor by taking advantage of them. And so what happens when people are poor? Well, you have poor academic achievement, more dropouts from school, um, more abuse, more neglect, behavioral problems, socio-emotional problems, health problems, developmental delays. Poverty does all of that. How poor are people in America? Well, this is um, uh, from about 10 years ago. It shows you that uh, one out of five Americans is now on food stamps. One in two American children are expected to be on food stamp before they turn 18. That is a, that's a lot of people. And what we see, this is federal spending on food stamps. It has grown sharply. So I'm going to keep injecting some of the things that we're going to talk about in the last talk in case we don't get to finish it. Every church that is able should have a community garden. So how powerful would it be that if people that knew the, the Adventist churches in our city of Hartford, I'll use Hartford, Connecticut, where I live, as the example. What if all our Adventist churches pooled together? We have churches, one um, CVAC, Central uh, Connecticut Valley Adventist Church, big plot of land in the back. What if we actually farmed the land or found land, farmed it, and then had mobile farmer's markets that went into the poorest parts of town and either for very low price or for free gave out fruits and vegetables? What would that do rather than going in and doing a health seminar? Now, you're still going to need a health seminar because they got to learn how to cook all those rutabagas and stuff, right? But you get that this, when we talk about social justice in the church, the church is going to have to begin to completely transform how we look. One of the things I told my church is growing up, Pathfinders was a way to take care of the children in the church, in, our, in the church I grew up in. We had an amazing Pathfinder club, the Golden Eagle Pathfinder club, Right? But today, it's not enough. The Pathfinder Club needs to be the Pathfinder Club for the neighborhood. You need to find all the kids in the neighborhood under 10 years old and get them involved so that you can help be a part of their lives on those Sundays. For all those people who don't go to church, a lot of them will be happy to have their kids 
in a structured program like Pathfinders. This is what where we really have to get to um, as time winds up. We have to do those types of things, right? So what? why does poverty matter? This is a study from Vanderbilt University. They said, uh, Larry Bartels, if I study, senators are fairly responsive to the preferences of those in the upper third of income distribution, less responsive to those in the middle third, and not at all responsive to the preferences of constituents in the bottom third of the income distribution. I hope you guys see that. Because even if you're filthy rich, they're still only fairly responsive to you. Who are they responsive to? The lobbyists. They're, re- they're most responsive to the people who support their campaigns and stuff like that, in my opinion. Right? So you have a real big problem. So one of the other big places of injustice uh, we talk about a lot is wage inequality. This is one of the things I've talked about a lot. And when I teach at the university, um, the, you know, it's a nursing thing. So, you know, it's like 30, 40 women and one guy. And the poor guy basically doesn't say anything in the whole class. Um, most of the time, the last class, the, the one guy did. But here's what wage inequality actually looks like. I want to show you a different perspective on this. When you flip it and you look at it and you say, well, it's, it's a gender issue. But it's not simply a gender issue, right? Um, white men make more money than white women, but they still, white men like, make less money than Asian men on average, right? And white women make more money than black men or Latino men. So it's far more complicated than that. But the rhetoric you hear is it's simply a gender issue. It depends on who you are. And unless you step back and start looking at this thing properly, again, you start to say, and, this, and what's happening in this Barbie movie, I don't think it helped, but the whole thing now is like men are the problem. Literally, men are the problem in the world. Spoiler alert again. There's a Bible verse that says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right? But against principalities, against spiritual wickedness where? In high places. If a man is your enemy, you missed. Right? If you think that white people are your enemy, black people are your enemy, if you think the government is your enemy, you have missed completely. Satan is the enemy. And as long as you make people your enemy, ironically, by beholding, you become changed. In fact, you will watch the oppressed often become just like the oppressor, right? The, the intolerance that they receive, they'll often reflect because by beholding, you become changed, right? So education is another one. There's a big thing with education and equality. Why is this re- relevant? Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, democracy cannot succeed unless those who express their choice are prepared to choose wisely. The real safeguard of democracy, therefore, is what? Education. So would it make sense? And I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but there are people who don't really care if whole swaths of the population are not well educated. Why would they not care? Because in many ways, you can control the people better if they're not educated. I, during the pandemic, I was shocked at how many seemingly intelligent people sent me like cartoons to try and convince me of stuff. Like a YouTube thing. I, I started saying, you're another YouTube scholar. Right? People don't want to stop and actually read and think on any issue anymore. They don't understand what's actually going on in the Middle East right now. Most people have no clue what's actually going on. But because it came up on their TikTok feed, they picked a side. In the, in the 2016 election, there was a study, and they looked at young people, and they said that before young Americans would vote, they actually looked online and, and to find out what the people they followed believed on an issue, and then they decided. In other words, if, you, if you're not taught to be a critical thinker, and let me just be clear, most kids going to U.S. universities and colleges days are not being taught to critically think. When I was in school, fortunately, I was. I mean, we really had tough debates on both sides of the issue. Not anymore. There are things you can't even discuss. Whole opinions that can't even come up or should be labeled some kind of a hater, bigoted. You, you can't even discuss it. So without that kind of critical thinking, it's very easy for people to believe because a lot of people think there's a lot of big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. If you believe that, they already got you. Not that much difference between the two parties. And what are most of the differences are real hot button issues that get you all emotionally riled up so that you miss the real issue. Right? I mean, you missed the real, real issues that are going on. All right. So this is the education achievement gap between blacks and whites. You see that there. 
It really hasn't changed in all these years. Um, and in fact, middle income uh, Americans, low, and really what we found is that it's less to do with race um, as much to do with class. And I want to submit to you that one of the things America's not doing, as much as we keep talking about race and gender and sexual orientation, that we miss class. Class is actually probably one of the biggest drivers of a lot of the injustice in America. And because we don't talk about class, you create groups that are completely alienated. Poor white men, completely alienated. Because you're blamed for the world's problems, but you're stuck with them at the same time, right? And you start, you alien, whole groups of people will be alienated and you won't get anywhere. And so you see that income is really important. Here's what Ellen White says. This is what she says about, to, to, to wrap up this section on why we need the work of social justice in our churches. The Lord will place a check upon the inordinate love of property and power. Great evils would result from the continued accumulation of wealth by one class and the poverty and degradation of another. With some restraint, the power of the wealthy would become a monopoly and the poor, though in every respect fully as worthy in God's sight, would be regarded and treated as inferior to the more prosperous brethren. The sense of this oppression would arouse the passions of the poorer class. That's what I just said. So what happens is you create these poor, a poor class and you can stimulate that poor class to rise up. There would be a feeling of despair and desperation which would tend to demoralize society and open the door to crimes of every description. The regulations that God established were designed to promote social equality. This is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is why you can have people say, in order to liberate one group of people from another group of people, you can rape and kill babies. Because you get to the point where you start to think it's by any means necessary. And when you see people protesting and holding up a sign that says by any means necessary, Understand that that is a very, very dark statement in the hands of the violent. Christians do not do anything by any means necessary. We do things according to the word of God. Now, here's what she says. God's word sanctions no policy that will enrich one class by the oppression and suffering of another. In all our business transactions, it teaches us to put ourselves in the place of those with whom we are dealing to look not only on our own things, but also on the things of others. He, would take, he who would take advantage of another's misfortunes in order to benefit himself or who seeks to profit himself through another's weakness or incompetence is a transgressor both of the principles and of the precepts of the word of God. God-fearing men and women have been brought to the depths of poverty by illness or misfortune, often through the dishonest scheming of those who live by preying upon their fellows. Profound. Now this is what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about the fact that the, the fast food stores go into poor neighborhoods. They know that there's less resources in those neighborhoods. They know that there's more stress. They know that the chicken nuggets and chickens don't have nuggets. Um, they know that bringing the French, they know that bringing that stuff in is going to be, and when you think about how the food industry designs the food, it's literally engineered I've spoken to people who do this as a job, and they know that the food is going to be addictive. And you bring that into the poorest parts of the country, poorest parts of the state, and you unleash it at low cost because we as taxpayers fund the, the, the mass agriculture, this mono-agriculture, uh, big farm, big, big farm uh, and that makes too much soy and corn, and now all of a sudden you can make cheap soy, soy oils and cheap corn oils and high fructose corn syrup, and the food can be sold for less than it should actually cost. You get what I'm saying? So now you flood the streets with this stuff, and you're making money off of the fact that these situations exist. It is not right. Biblically not right. Now, whole communities are devoid of education in industrial and sanitary lines. Families live in hovels with scant furniture and clothing, without tools, without books, destitute both of comforts and conveniences and of means of culture. Imbruted souls, bodies weak and ill-formed, reveal the results of evil heredity and wrong habits. These people must be educated from the very foundation. They have led shiftless, idle, corrupt lives, and they need to be trained to correct habits. Very harsh words, and a lot of people would, would wait, wag a finger at Ellen White, but you got to remember when she was writing. She was writing this at a time when if you went into New York City, New York City was just a... 
a patchwork of projects. Um, and if you remember, there was um, some of the books that were written on the conditions of living and working in the big cities in America at the time. It was actually horrendous. This is not a racial statement. It's a, it's a statement about the different levels of class and how we lift people up. And again, I'm going to show you an example from Ellen White's life as to how she invested in this herself. All right. So next one. Um, prophecy and social justice. Don't know if we'll get through all of this one either, but we have a, three more sessions. That's the good. There's not church. Huh? I can just push it on to the next one. <laughs> all right. Prophecy and social justice. Right. So this is going to be a personal one. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, where? In high places. What are we really battling? Demons. Satan. I mean, literally as we speak, Satan is in control of the world. Now, God is ultimately in control of But when it comes to what's going on in the world, the devil is the one pushing a lot of these buttons. He knows what he's doing, and he's trying to get the reaction that would drive people away from God. That is literally what Satan is after. Never forget that. So um, now we go to the the Garden of Eden. I told you we're going to get to the Garden of Eden. So we talked about Cain and Abel in the last session. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit, but of the, fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing what? Knowing good and evil. So let me go back. The devil influences the serpent. The serpent speaks to the woman. Now, this is not the serpent like today's serpent. I have a bit of a fear of snakes, personally. But this was a very majestic, beautiful creature. In fact, every culture in the world, almost, has an idea of dragons, a winged serpent. I mean, all around the world, it's a, a common theme, right? And it says, as God said, you shall not eat of the tree of every garden. Satan always starts off asking you a question, right? He likes to ask the question. He likes to question God's word. What did God really say? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree, fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, we're not supposed to eat it. She says, neither shall you touch it lest ye die. The serpent comes back with this bold statement, which is the birth of spiritualism. Ye shall not surely die. The devil has an advantage over God in the great controversy. God always tells the truth. He's stuck telling the truth. And part of the reason people attack the Bible is because the truth is in it. Satan has an advantage in that he can lie. The Bible says, in fact, he's the father of lies. Now, that is very relevant, that Satan can lie and God does not. If you, you know, I talk a lot, you hear my sermons, I talk a lot about Roger Morneau's book, A Trip into the Supernatural. Um, and and it, 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 it actually correlates when you look at um, rock and roll and heavy metal and even hip hop. Right? This idea that Lucifer is the victim, right? So the Rolling Stones made the song, Sympathy for the Devil. Um, and the Luciferians to this day believe, listen, what the devil tells them. If you go to, a, you know, when Roger Minot was worshiping demons, if you go to the thing, they actually told him, they said, listen, um, the demon priest said, listen, Lucifer has told us that God wouldn't really destroy this earth. God is too merciful. He won't destroy this earth and all these people. He's going to give the world over to Lucifer. And so there are people in entertainment and in business who are bigwigs, who are superstars, who actually believe that they're on the right side of the great controversy. That Satan is going to finally win and he's going to be given this world. He starts with this lie, ye shall not surely die. Because that statement is a statement that contradicts the biblical mandate that the wages of sin is death. In fact, one of the reasons, one of the most unjust 
false doctrines out there is the belief that hell burns forever. Have you ever heard that? But it's not biblical. It isn't true. Because how fair would God be if you live for 70 years and burn for 70 million years? That wouldn't make any sense. Right? And because of that one lie, many people, many people have given up on God and Christianity. Right? So it's a terrible lie. And he started with that lie, you shall not surely die. Because if you really did burn forever in hell, technically you would never pay the price of sin. The price of sin is what? Yeah, so if I lived forever screaming in pain, I actually never would have paid the price for sin. Verse 5 is a statement of what the devil plans to do with social justice issues. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as what? Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And I'm going to show you that this has come full circle in pop culture in Eastern religions, in the way the world is turning, at the devil's idea around this. And you know what he's really saying to Eve? You, I mean, read it, if you read, read it, you can see it. God's not fair. It's not fair that you can't eat from this one tree. It's not fair that he's keeping information from you. In fact, the reason he told you this is because if you eat it, you're going to be like him. In fact, when you read the translation, the better translation isn't that ye shall be as gods. It, sh is, it really better translates, ye shall be God. So he, here Satan is promising Eve divinity right out of the gate in the Garden of Eden over a forbidden fruit. And the premise is God is not fair. And I want to submit to you that when you look at the social movements starting at the French Revolution, which we'll talk about this afternoon, and going all the way through to today, the recurring theme is God is not fair. And what they say is if God was fair, he would never allow all the suffering that we described in the last talk. He would never describe, he'd never allow slavery. He would never allow uh, Jim Crow. He would never allow uh, um, all of the prejudiced women have suffered. He would never allow the subjugation of one nation by another nation. If God was truly fair and he's all powerful, he would never do this. In D.C., um, and, and, you know, D.C., Lex Luthor, that's one of his big things, the enemy of Superman. When I used to read comic books when I was a kid, Lex Luthor is the one who says, listen, God cannot be who he is. Because if he is all powerful, then he can't be all good. And if he's all good, then he can't be all powerful. And he takes that from a... A, a, a philosopher who said that, right? They said, basically, listen, if God is really all good and all powerful, why would anyone suffer in this world? But embedded in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5 is the answer to that question. The answer to the question as to why God would allow suffering is God had to allow choice. You see, there's a few things God can't do. One of them is he can't lie. Did you know that? God can't lie. Because if God said the sky is plaid, what would happen to the sky? It turned plaid. You go out there and it look like um, some fancy clothes up in the sky. But the other, another thing God cannot do, God cannot force you to love him. I'm going to say that again because this is where a lot of people miss and they can't stand Christianity. They don't want nothing to do with the Bible. God cannot force you to love him. If he forced you to love him, would it be love? Can someone force you to love them? If you're in a relationship and the other person's trying to force you to love them, that's a good sign you need to run. Because it can't be forced. You must choose to love the other person, just like God wants us to choose to love him. In fact, you know why we were created? We were all created because God wants our love. So he, he has to build us with choice. Now, in one of my recent sermons, I was just doing the sermon on um, the close of probation. Uh, I think it was on the close of probation. And I got to the point where it talks about where Jesus ceases his mediation in the heavenly sanctuary. And I was reading, I think it was Morris Venden. Morris Venden in one of his books, he says, that, you know, we say that Jesus stops his mediation. He said, but you got to really look at that because there's a verse that says he liveth, uh, he who liveth to ever make intercession for us. And then Morris Venden says, how could both be true? How could he stop mediating and interceding and still do it forever? He says because there are two parts to it. One of them is that he will stop interceding for the forgiveness of sin, but he never stops interceding for the victory over sin. 
Ellen White has a great quote, I say in that sermon, where she says, in fact, even the unfallen worlds, he mediates on their behalf. Powerful. Choice. That's it. It's choice. Why is the world so terrible? Because when people choose to do evil like Cain did, we talked about last, uh, last, the last talk, when people choose to do evil, the evil creates consequences. If God wiped away all the consequences of the evil, it would st- you would still wipe away choice. Right? If, tr- if you really could just do whatever you wanted, if you could climb on top of the building and jump off and God made the ground into a trampoline and you bounced up and down, did you really have a choice? No, because you knew the outcome in advance. That's not a choice. So the world is wicked and evil because God had to allow choice. Now let me, let me plug this. One of the things that's interesting is the Bible makes it clear, actually David says it, that when we cry because of the choices that evil has, uh, the results that evil choices have caused in our lives and in this world, David says that when we cry, God catches our tears in a bottle and that they're written in a book. In other words, God weeps and cries with us. The proof of that is when Jesus in in the book of John, is standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. What does Jesus do? I call it the Pathfinder verse. Everybody says, oh, you say a verse of the Bible. Everybody says, you know, Pathfinder comes and Jesus wept. He wept. Why would Jesus weep if he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? He couldn't have been weeping for Lazarus. But the spirit of prophecy says that as he looked through the annals of time, he saw when I would be standing over my mother's grave and weeping, He saw the atrocities that war would cause. He saw what famine would do, what pestilence would do. Jesus saw all of the suffering of the world. He saw the results of sin. He listened as they wept behind him over Lazarus. Jesus moved to tears, wept. And he weeps again over Jerusalem. It represents the fall of of that great nation. And the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but also speaks to the destruction of this world at the second coming. He wept. So it isn't that God is separate from our suffering. We'll talk more about that later on. He suffers with us. Never forget that. In fact, the Bible says, God says, I have no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I want to submit to you that whatever you've suffered through, whatever trial you've had, God has hurt more than you have in it. It's not like God is just some distant being that doesn't suffer with you. This is why, and and the world just celebrated the first advent, this is why he sent his son to earth. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to leave his place on high where thousands uh, and thousands upon 10,000 angels cried, holy, Holy, holy. He was adored 24-7 all the time. Can you imagine what it was like to wake up in a manger with bleeding sheep and mooing cows? Satan himself, as he saw Jesus laying in the manger, the devil himself was in shock and awe that one who was once so high would come so low. That's justice. Jesus did nothing to deserve what happened to him on earth. He did it so that all of us would get an opportunity to live the way he deserves to live. So Satan uses what is not fair to create fear and destroy faith. Satan uses what is not fair to create fear and destroy faith. And because the people listening to this won't see this, the first fear is spelled F-A-I-R. He, Satan looks at all these injustices. He looks at all of it. In fact, we'll talk about it more, but this is literally the folly of the disciples. They couldn't get past what wasn't fear. Right? They couldn't get past Roman occupation. They could not get past the reestablishment of David's throne and Israel as the dominant nation in the world. He, they couldn't get past it. And because of it, their faith was shaken. So here's, this one is no fear becomes fear, and becomes no faith. Here's what 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. But I fear, 
lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom ye have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. We're not supposed to accept another gospel. And the gospel of social justice now has become a different gospel. It's a separate gospel. We'll talk more about it a little later on. But it's a gospel that says, one, we can fix this world. And we can't. It's a gospel that says that people are the solution. Who I elect, which political party I follow, which, which revolutionary group I support, that has been going on for 6,000 years and looks where we have landed. With all the intellect, with all the technology, with all the advancements of mankind, you still have bombs. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't even say still. Now you have bombs dropping. Semi-automatic weapons fired across hostile lines. All the progress the world has made has not resulted in a more sophisticated planet. Matthew 27, 17 says this. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, who will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? I'll pause here to, to give a little bit of the background. Um, let, me, let me move to those slides. This is where I went to high school at Miami Palmetto Senior High School. I'm not in this picture, but you, can, you probably recognize the woman in the middle there. That is the, the uh, last Supreme Court justice, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, we graduated from the same high school the same year, Miami Palmetto Senior High School. Um, and here's a picture of the high school where I graduated from. It looks a lot better nowadays. It wasn't that good looking when I was there. But, um, and so when I was in the 10th grade, um, I was living in a town called Bloomfield in Connecticut. And my mother decided to join the rest of her family and move to Miami. And, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, I, you know, I shoveled snow every winter, I mean, you know, we wore coats and scarves, didn't think much of it, until we got to Miami. And I said, what took us so long? I mean, we're at, <laughs> we're at the beach on Christmas, this is, this is awesome. The school that I was registered in was one of the best schools. To this day, Miami Palmetto Senior High School is one of the top um, 50 high schools in the United States. And, um, She's not one, the only one. I mean, former Surgeon Generals of the United States have come out of that high school. Public high school. We were bust from a poor part of town. I talked to you about redlining. The realtor that sold my mother the house would only go into the neighborhood a certain way. And we bought a nice house. But we didn't know we were just across the road from one of the crack capitals of the United States of America in West Perrine, Miami, Florida. So we grew up in a neighborhood where there were always police helicopters overhead. You could hear gunshots in the distance. Um, pretty rough neighborhood. Again, our, our side of the neighborhood wasn't bad, but just on the other side, it was pretty rough. Um, I'll never forget the first day I went to school, and um, my, my, the, um, the, the guidance counselor, when he saw me, said, all right, we want you to play football. And I'd played football in Connecticut, won a state championship in freshman year, but I hurt my knee my 10th grade year, and I, I retired instantly. Six weeks on crutches, I said, this game is not worth me hobbling around the rest of my life. I said, Mom, besides the fact that you know, and by, by, they wanted me to play varsity, which the games would have been on Sabbath. So I was at that point where I was going to have to make a decision to not play anyway. But I didn't need to get that far. It wasn't a Sabbath issue. It was a health issue. And I said, that hurt, and I, couldn't, you know, I, I quit. And this guy tells me I'm going to play football. And I was in all, in all advanced placement honors classes in Connecticut, and I'm expecting to sign up for the same thing in Miami. And he says, no, we're going to put you in all average level classes, we're going to, you know, so that you can play football. And I jumped out of the chair at him. My mother grabbed me. Um, I was so insulted. And it was my first evidence that in this new, because in Connecticut, my friends were Italian, Polish. I mean, in fact, were, we didn't even have white people. Everybody was like something. Like they were Polish, Irish. They were something. I mean, they, 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 came, they came from somewhere, Greek. They were something, right? Um, and all of us just got along. I mean, you know, everybody listened to the same music. They a lot of them wore the same hip-hop clothes. You had the preppies, and, you know, it, everybody got along. Miami was different. It was a very wealthy neighborhood that I wound up in, and the school had a terrible history of racism. 
So not only did I have this first encounter with the guidance counselor, the first day I went to school and walked into the bathroom, above the sink, big area like that, someone climbed up there with a pen and drew a picture of an ape with a noose around its neck, and it said, N-words, go back to Africa underneath. I had never, well, I'd never seen anything like that in a school. Because in our school, that wouldn't have happened up in Connecticut. But this was a different world. Now, when I would visit my relatives in Florida, I saw some interesting things. Um, you, know, I saw, you know, I saw some crazy stuff down in Homestead, Florida, this was years ago. Homestead now is a very populated, very different place now. Um, and I was shocked. And I would go to class, and students would say stuff, and I was like, I remember when Doug Williams was playing quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Some of you football fans may remember that. And, and literally in class, we had a discussion if black men are smart enough to play quarterback. I was sitting there like, what in the world? But you know, God is good. Doug Williams broke every Super Bowl record for quarterback that Super Bowl, smashed it, and blew out his competition. I was so happy to go back to school on Monday. I wonder if black people can play quarterback after all, can they? Right? But I was constantly, constantly called the N-word. Like, it was like constant. They, they, they built a synagogue across the street, and they, these fake little neo-Nazis. See, when I, was a, when I was younger, I thought they were actually, realize now they really probably were just some little play kids wanting to just disrupt stuff. But they swastika the, the synagogue. School was 40% Jewish, so there was a whole, like, backlash against the Jewish kids that was also very bad. Um, that's why I went and lived in Israel for a little while because they had, because of so many Jewish kids, they had a program where you could go do high school in Israel. I was like, well, not Jewish, but I'll go to Israel. Um, <laughs> I went right along with them, started learning Hebrew and everything. Um, but it, what, I wanted to, what I want you to get from that is that it, it, it is scarring. It, it creates a, you become callous. You begin to assume everyone is that way. Now, the high irony is my best friend in high school was a white dude. Still, I still have, and he loved reggae music. So he and I would hang out, listen to reggae, go to reggae concerts. Really weird. He was the coolest dude in the whole school. Um, but it did affect me. And, it, and I was angered after a while. And then what happens, of course, is at the time, of course, we didn't have social media like you guys have today. But you still got to a point where you, you, you began to see the world through the lens of race, something that just didn't happen when I was in Connecticut. It, it just wasn't the same. And it changed who I was. And I don't want to show you how that, how that happened. So that reality was then exaggerated by the media. I want you guys to get this. Because now, the media does some horrible exaggerating. Do you know the, the media over-represents black crime on news? Most people don't know that. I have slides on that. So you think black people are more criminal than they actually are. Um, but the media does some other horrible things, right? It'll point out one thing that happens and blow it way up, and you missed all the other things that are happening. And so the media, you know, you, you hear about what's going on in the world at the time. People were fighting apartheid in South Africa. And so, you, you know, there's anger, there's this idea that we've got to fight, we've got to stick, we've got to do that. And what the devil does, he's a master. He will use the tools he's good at. What is the devil's, one of the devil's number one most effective tools? Music. I want to submit to you that before social media, now I, I think social media is more effective because I see kids come in to um, be seen in clinic and they just, scroll, just scroll, scrolling like they have seizures, just scrolling, right? And, um, but the media exaggerates and social media hyper-exaggerates it. I mean, and the problem with social media, there's no real filter on truth, and a lot of people running these social media companies actually have a political bent themselves, so it really gets tricky. I mean, it, it's just a real mess. So I'm going to give you an example of what happened. So while I was at the school, this all happened, and I was, I was, I don't like the word radicalized, because it's not like I was doing anything, but it changed the way I thought, changed the way I saw things. In fact, I start going to church became difficult. Because I'd go into church and complain, hey, why aren't we talking more about the, you know, the liberation of black people? You know, and my, my, my pastor at the time was like someone who'd been in the civil rights movement. He'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Go sit down. Right? Uh, luckily, I had a pastor like that. Um, because nowadays, I'd had a pastor that'd be like, yeah, let's go overthrow the government. Um, and, you know, and so as I, I mean, so, you know, you, I was getting angry and angry. Church became harder to go to. Um, 
you know, and, I, and this was, became just like my focus in general. And then what happens is, you know, they start telling you that Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, and you, they start telling you, you know, turning your mind away from the church. Seventh-day Adventist, you know, the, you, the church isn't a good church. It's a segregated church. You shouldn't be a Seventh-day Adventist. Then the devil slips in. He slips in with music. So one of the groups is Rastafarianism and reggae music. This is the cover album for Burning the, uh, by the Wailers. It be, later becomes Bob Marley and the Wailers, you guys would know him as. They're about to make a biopic about Bob Marley. I know Bob Marley's family well. One of my, one of my cousins is his first niece. Um, yeah, his first niece. And so I used to go to the house where his mother was in, in Miami and sit with them. And, and it was like I'd, I was able to sit with them, sit with the dreads. Right. I remember the dreads telling me, you know, um, you know, they told me Haley Selassie is coming back for them in a spaceship. The dread told me. I said, what? I don't know if you guys know. Haley Selassie was the former emperor of Ethiopia that the Rastafarians worship as God, even though he came to Jamaica and told them he wasn't God. But they said the translator got it wrong. Um, <laughs> so he's like, you know, Haley Selassie's coming for, back for us in a spaceship. And I said, I didn't know Ethiopia had a space program. I, I never heard that. That doesn't make any sense. And they, want, and they wanted you to smoke weed, right? So part of this, part of what's happening with social justice is this infusion of marijuana, high levels of alcohol consumption, disarm the mind. So it's a lot of things. I don't want to talk about it because I never got into alcohol or drugs. That, that, that must, it wasn't because of the police. I was afraid of my mother. Um, but... I remember the dredge telling me, you, you, you know, you should smoke weed, a Rastafarian. Man, you must smoke the weed. And I was like, why? I said, I'm a Christian. I won't smoke weed. I said, if you want me to smoke weed, you got to show me from the Bible why I should smoke weed. And the dredge take the Bible, start flipping through the Bible, throw back his dreads. You know, see another book of Exodus? When Moses approached the burning bush. I said, man, the bush ain't burned. He ain't smoked the bush. What are you talking about? You messing up the scriptures. He said, all right, man. And he started flipping. Turn to another place. And you know, see another book of Psalms where it says, out of the nostrils of God come the smoke. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. It ain't because he smoked a blunt. What are you talking about? But once you start to get, once you start to question God's word, you begin to distance yourself from his truth and his church. Satan will lay on you all forms of deception. It's as if you let the, the shield of faith down. Once you place that thing down, his fiery darts come. And what are fiery darts often feel like cool sprays of water. So that you're deceived into thinking you're getting what you want. When in fact, that's not what you want. So... I'll give you an example. This is Bob Marley's song. I'm going to show you how they de-Christianize young minds. Bob Marley's song, Get Up, Stand Up. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up. don't give up the fight. Hey, look at what he says. Preacher man, don't tell me. Heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. Uh, it's not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. So now you see the light. Stand up for your rights. Then look at what Peter Tosh sings this line. Most people think great God will come from the sky Take away everything and make everybody feel high. That is the second coming. That's the new earth, all just thrown out of the window. He says, but if you know what life is worth, you would look for yours on earth, and now you see the light, you stand up for your right. You see what happens as me now as a 15, 16-year-old, mad at the world, mad at the church, and you listen to this? This is what, what you get. And then they say, we're sick and tired of your ism schisms, talking about religion, game, dying, and going to, dying to go to heaven in Jesus' name. Lord, we know and we understand almighty God is a living man, because they thought Haley Selassie. Of course, Haley Selassie ended up dying, and I don't know what they did after that. Um, he says, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. So now we see the light. We're going to stand up for your rights. Now, so you see that? Like... Here it is to trick you into believing that in order to get your rights, you have got to reject God or believe he's a man on earth. When Satan comes and imitates Jesus, 
The world will be ripe for it. Because lyrics like that. There's other groups like Public Enemy. Public Enemy was one of the groups I listened to the most. I was like so deep into PE. Public Enemy was, were followers of Louis Farrakhan. Um, and they taught that. And I became a follower of Louis Farrakhan because of that. Hip-hop music is what we listen to. The 5% Nation of Islam. Many of you might know who they are. Um, they believe that the black man is God and the white man is the devil. Now, some famous 5%ers are Jay-Z, married to Beyonce, uh, Rakim here, that's the symbol that they have there. The Wu-Tang the Wu Clan um, on the right here is the Wu-Tang Clan. Big Daddy Kane, some of you guys don't know who these people are, which is good. But this was, and so I want you to get this. The very music, so celebrated. And I think just recently they had, um, the Grammys did a 50 years of hip-hop special. And you know, all these rappers go up there. Literally the spiritual foundation of rap music is the 5% nation of Islam. This doctrine permeates. This is why it's so, and, and Paul actually speaks to this. You know Paul actually addresses much of the modern music, hip-hop, reggaeton, dancehall reggae, rock. He addresses it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, 16, he says, uh, he says, um, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And in verse 16, what does he say? Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will, in, they will lead to increased ungodliness. That's profound. That's literally what the music of the day is. It is vain and it is what? Profane. Get this. So social justice is now plugged into this. So when you say, all right, I'm going to turn and find an answer to the world's problems there, this is what the devil presents, especially now to young black men. And the big one that's come up now are the black Hebrew Israelites, people like Kendrick Lamar and Kodak. These guys have become Hebrew Israelites, you know, so Kendrick Lamar has the lyric where he says, I'm not about a religion, I'm an Israelite, don't call me black no more. You know, that word's a, only a color, it ain't facts no more. And so you get into this stuff, and now, I hope you're getting this, we, I have been in churches in Los Angeles where people walk in off the street, black Hebrew Israelites, to try and recruit our young men into the black Hebrew Israelites. And because our young people don't know the Bible, these guys come with all these texts to try and prove that, the, that black people are the real Israelites, not just black people, but Latinos. And it's the craziest, most foolish belief system you've ever seen, started by one dude in the south of Chicago. One dude started the whole thing. I never get over that. I don't know how Chicago does it, because they did it with the Nation of Islam, too. And so now people believe if you come from Jamaica, you're one tribe. If you come from Puerto Rico, you're one tribe. If you come from Haiti, it's one tribe. If you come from America, black Americans are the tribe of Judah. What? You probably don't even know who your great-grandmother is. What do you mean you're from the tribe of Judah? Right? But this deception, because now what happens is they don't, they don't, there's no more need for Jesus. Right? They believe in Jesus, but they don't need Jesus. They, and literally, they say, you just had to keep the law. And they go back to the Old Testament law. And then ultimately, I got here. This is one of the, one of the most deceptive guys you'll ever listen to. Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. An incredible orator, but he teaches some really despicable lies. Very dangerous stuff. And I'll tell you, I went through all of that stuff and got into the radical stuff when I, you know, I'd go looking for different groups. In fact, when I was at Oakwood University, not Oakwood University, then Oakwood College, my roommate and I brought up one of the ministers from the Nation of Islam to Huntsville, Alabama, and had him, um, and had him um, present at, 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 in Huntsville. And they, that's how they started the mosque, because my roommate and I, I was so into this stuff, we brought him up there. Of course, Oakwood wouldn't allow him on campus, praise the Lord, right? But he, was on, he, was, he came in town and he did it. Luckily, I never left the church, but this stuff really affected me. I'm talking what happens when you experience injustice, experience hatred, and you don't bring that stuff to God. Ultimately, there's a lot more to the story, but I'll, I'll, I'll go here. After church one Sabbath when I was in medical school at the University of Miami, Louis Farrakhan, as a matter of fact, I'd gotten so good with the Nation of Islam that I joined their Stop the, National Stop the Violence Committee and when I would go to hear Farrakhan speak, they'd actually give me special seating, you know, stuff like that. I'd go to the mosque and people would look out for me. So I was, had not looked at him, listened to him in a long time. And so 
I decided to go hear him speak in Miami at the Miami Arena after church one Sabbath. And so instead of going to AY, I went to hear him. And I went, stadium hold, 8,000 people showed up to the Miami Arena. Farrakhan begins to speak. I'm sitting with these two young ladies, very bright. They're both sisters. They're in law school um, of Haitian descent. And, and, you know, we're sitting there, and Farrakhan starts his talk. And, you know, he's really good at making you feel like the world is against you and, and gets you angry and riled up. And then he goes and he says, the black man is the original man. And I said, I've heard that before. People start clapping. He said, and I can prove it. I said, all right, I got to hear this. He said, I can prove it. He said, 66 trillion years ago. I said, trillion with a T? Not even the evolutionists believe in billions, like trillions. 66 trillion years ago, he said, the black man blew the moon off of the earth with dynamite. I said, what in the world? I said, the Chinese invented dynamite like 3,000 years ago. What is he talking about? And every, this is what got me afraid. It was the applause. 8,000 people raucously applauding this. Then he says, and I can prove it. He said, when the astronauts went to the moon, they could still smell the dynamite. You laugh. I slunk down in my seat and I repented. On the spot, I realized just how deceived I had been, what my anger had led me to. In that moment, I get, it's like I, it just it left me. I, I said, I was literally in the audience of demonic teaching. And what was crazy is that 8,000 people rose to their feet applauding. And that's when I realized that this, you cannot play with this stuff. You cannot assume that you can just fool around with it and everything is going to be right. You've got to understand that if you play on the devil's playground, he will get you. And even if you have been truly wrongfully treated, the answer is not to retreat into self or revenge. Once you do that, you, Satan seals your destruction. Here's what the Bible says. Matthew 5, 43. Ye have, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Matthew 5, 44 says this. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes, the, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I was, I was debating just recently with someone who um, is, is very pro-Palestine and pro-Hamas, quite frankly, felt that what happened in, in, uh, on October 7th was justified and I was not trying to win an argument, definitely not trying to take a side, but I was trying to share the love of Jesus Christ with this person because they were so angry. One of the things I was telling them, was like, you, you texted me some of this stuff. I said, you're going to get me and you in trouble with the FBI. You need to stop texting some of this crazy stuff you texted, right? I mean, you're talking about revolutions and overthrowing stuff. And I say, listen, man, I'm not with all of that. They come, I'm snitching. I'm going to tell. I'm going to listen. I love Jesus. I ain't trying to throw nothing over. I'm not trying to do nothing bad. Amen, hallelujah, right? And as I'm debating with this person, they're telling me that it will take violence. Violence is the only way. Blood must be shed. This and this. They're telling me all this stuff. I said, listen, I've been where you are. Not quite that far out there, but I've been where you are. Violence just begets violence. You create a never-ending cycle of violence. And I said, the two great bloodless revolutions, what Gandhi did in India... And what Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement did in America were bloodless. They were nonviolent responses to injustice and occupation and all these things. I said, the problem is if violence is what is used, you will no one ever wins. And she started going after me and saying, well, you know, you know trying to give me examples of the contrary. I said, listen, at the end of the day, I follow Jesus Christ. 
Because Jesus said, turn the other cheek. He said, if they ask for your coat, give them your cloak. If they say go a mile, go two miles. And nobody was as oppressed as Jesus was. I said, you got it all wrong. You think you can fight your way out of a problem. You think you can shed enough blood to fix the world. It won't fix the world. The movements of today think that the louder you are, the more scary you are, the more destructive you are and disruptive you are, the more you're going to change things. But it doesn't really change anything. The church has the daunting, difficult task in these last days to be the organization that brings true love, agape love, back into these arguments. That means that even when I have been done wrong, I will react as Christ did. As he hung on that tree, the spotless, sinless, completely innocent son of God, as he hung on Calvary's tree and he thought about what was being done to him, Jesus' response wasn't, Lord, Father, send the angels in fire. In fact, he told Peter, he said, if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels. You got folk that would have called 100,000. Instead, Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And hanging from that tree, that ignoble tree, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible makes it clear. There's nothing on earth worth losing your soul over. Nothing on earth worth losing your soul over. And that is what has happened to so many. Because when you go back here, and you have to make the choice between Christ and Barabbas. You know what social justice is doing to a lot of our young people? They're choosing Barabbas. You see, Barabbas was the revolutionary. He's the one who committed murder. He's the one who stole for the cause. He's the one who caused riots in the streets of Jerusalem. That was Barabbas. And if you're not careful, you choose Barabbas, you choose the revolutionary over the Savior. And the names were similar, you know. His name was Jesus, Jesus, oh, Jesus. His, name, his name was Yahshua Barabbas. That was his name. It was literally just the same, the first name is Jesus, and his last name means son of the father. The two of them stood there, both types of a Messiah, and they chose Barabbas because they weren't concerned with eternal kingdoms. They wanted an earthly one. That's Marxism, socialism, as much of the social justice movements of the day. They want a kingdom now. Young people, that's not what we're after. You have eternity to live for. Don't choose Barabbas. Listen, the, the, I, I had a whole thing on how, on, on how all, of the, all of the oppression that the Roman Empire caused. I could go through it. And yet, Jesus did not spend his time looking to overthrow the Roman Empire. He spent his time building the kingdom of God. And he did more to alleviate the suffering the Romans caused in his ministry than all the revolutionaries in Jerusalem combined. He healed the sick. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He raised the dead to life, made the blind to see, caused the deaf to hear. That is our job. It isn't to establish a new kingdom. This is why the evangelicals are so wrong. They think that in Israel right now, this war is going to lead to an establishment of a third temple. They think that they're, this, the same thing the disciples wanted, they want. It's the same lie. It's the same Barabbas. Jesus is about to return. You've got to choose him. Satan is going to pour it all out. The Bible says if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. We need to be sealed. And how are we sealed? We're sealed because we have the character of Christ. And you won't get the character of Christ seeking revenge. You won't get the character of Christ blaming people. You won't get the character of Christ hating people, looking down on people, thinking ill of people. You get the character of Christ by serving people. By loving people. By establishing people. That's how you get the character of Christ. And that's the only thing you can take with you into glory. I'll leave it there. I was Barabbas. But praise God. I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And I have a clarity about life now. The only thing I'm concerned about 
is meeting my Jesus in the sky. And I pray that that's what all of us want. Because the true end of the injustices of this world is in Christ establishing the next one. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the truth about uh, justice that you give us. We pray, Father God, as we go through these, the, the series, uh, Father God, we would all be drawn to you and come to know you better. Lord, we want to be um, active in doing your work on earth, continuing in the ministry of Jesus. And Father God, we do not want to choose Barabbas. We choose Jesus Christ. How about to be our lifelong goal and our moment-by-moment choice is our prayer in Jesus' name. This message was recorded in partnership with Audio Burst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.